Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where history waits for no one. The day was May 21st, 1979. In the aftermath of the sentencing of Dan White, who assassinated San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and city supervisor Harvey Milk, riots erupted in the city. Milk was a gay rights activist. Moscone had lobbied against White's reappointment as a member of the Board of Supervisors, and he had a lot of support in the gay community. White was convicted of voluntary manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. After the verdict was released on May 21st, protesters and police went head-to-head in a night of chaos. Dan White, a former police officer and firefighter, was a member of the Board of Supervisors alongside Harvey Milk. While Milk was a supervisor, he advocated for gay rights and small business owners. Milk and White were on good terms at first, personally and politically. But their relationship went downhill when Milk voted for a zoning bill that White opposed after Milk implied that he was on White's side. After that, White was the only person to vote against a city ordinance banning discrimination based on sexual orientation that Milk pushed through. He began pushing back against Milk's efforts. White began rarely showing up to his office at City Hall and his family was finding it hard to make ends meet and had opened a new snack food business. At the same time, Milk was enjoying a lot of success in legislation he was sponsoring and getting positive press attention. In November 1978, White resigned from the board, saying he was not making enough money as a supervisor to support his family. But when White decided to come back days later, Moscone did not reappoint him, with Milk lobbying against White's reappointment. On November 27, 1978, White went into City Hall with a 38 revolver. To avoid a weapon search, he entered the building through a side door. Moscone's assistant let White into Moscone's office, where White shot the mayor four times. White then walked down the hall and asked Milk if they could talk, and White shot him five times. Diane Feinstein, who was then president of the Board of Supervisors, announced the deaths on the steps of City Hall. White was apprehended not long after the murders. Months later, White went to trial. During the trial, White's attorney mounted what became known as a Twinkie defense, arguing that White had diminished capacity due to depression and the loss of his job, as evidenced by the excessive amounts of junk food he was eating in the weeks leading up to the crime. The jury, made up mostly of conservatives, was sympathetic to White. On May 21, 1979, he was found guilty of the voluntary manslaughter of Moscone and Milk. He was sentenced to seven years and eight months in prison, with the chance to be released earlier with good behavior. When the verdict was announced, the gay community, which was large in San Francisco, marched in protest but a peaceful march to City Hall turned violent as the crowd grew larger. Many people believed the police were instrumental in White's light sentencing. Officers beat protesters with nightsticks. Protesters set police cars on fire and destroyed parts of City Hall. After about three hours of rioting, 
Officers quelled the commotion with tear gas. About 50 officers and 124 protesters were injured. About two dozen people were arrested. Police harassment of gay people in San Francisco and intolerance of gay people in the police force were already a part of the city's culture. But tensions between police and the gay community grew after the trial and riots. The day after the riots, city supervisor Harry Britt, who had replaced Milk, said the following. Harvey Milk's people do not have anything to apologize for. Now the society is going to have to deal with us, not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. We're not going to put up with damn whites anymore. May 22nd would have been Milk's 49th birthday. A rally planned for that night turned into a celebration of Milk's life. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Feel free to leave a very kind comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through time. See you here in the exact same spot tomorrow. Hey y'all, I'm Eves, and welcome to the Stand History Class, a podcast that brings you a little slice of history every single day. The day was May 21st, 1917. A fire tore through the city of Atlanta, displacing around 10,000 people and destroying nearly 2,000 buildings. The fire caused more destruction than William Tecumseh Sherman's capture of Atlanta in 1864. That morning, the fire department had gotten calls about a series of small fires. A fire was reported at a cotton warehouse downtown. Firefighters also showed up to put out a fire on Woodward Avenue that destroyed several homes. There was also a fire in the West End. That afternoon, another fire began in a warehouse north of Decatur Street that Grady Hospital was using as a storage facility. When the firefighters got to the scene, they found stacks of cotton mattresses on fire, but they didn't have the hoses they needed to get water to the fire. Their resources were spread thin because of all of the other fires that took place that day. The big fire that ended up causing millions of dollars of damage started around 12.46 p.m. It's unclear exactly how the fire started. It may have begun when the wind blew sparks from the fire on Woodward Avenue to the warehouse, but the fire quickly spread north as wind provided the fire with more fuel. And two weeks of dry weather made Atlanta's wood-shingled homes extremely susceptible to fire. On top of that, people who volunteered to help weren't given adequate guidance. Also, there was not a telephone line open for the sole use of the fire department and the firefighters needed more hoses and fire hydrants, and they had to take roundabout ways to get to some fires because of poor road conditions. On Boulevard, parts of the street itself burned because some of it was paved with wood block. Fire Chief William Cody decided to dynamite some homes in the path of the fire to stop it from spreading. Mayor Asa Candler went to the DuPont Powder Company to get crates of dynamite and explosive experts set about exploding homes. Candler also called for military assistance. Martial law was declared that evening and lasted until May 22nd. Other cities inside and outside of Georgia sent firefighters to help fight the blaze. 
The fire wasn't completely extinguished until 10 o'clock that night. It had burned around 300 acres and caused about $5 million of damage, which is about $100 million in 2020. The fire continued to smolder in places, and people who lost their housing stayed in Piedmont Park, vacant lots, churches, and hotel lobbies. Others were able to stay with their families. Only one person reportedly died from the fire when she had a heart attack while her home was being destroyed. Around 60 people went to the hospital for fire-related injuries. Since the U.S. had just entered World War I, rumors spread that the fire was an act of German sabotage. Because the Fourth Ward was hit hard by the fire, many of the residents affected were Black. Some of the articles published in the aftermath of the fire downplayed its impact on residents, and city planners were reported as touting the fire as a benefit to Atlanta. Press coverage and the devastation the fire caused in the Fourth Ward highlighted the racism prevalent in the city and the racial disparities in urban planning and housing. Local stores, companies, churches, colleges, and newspapers pledged to make donations to help victims of the fire. Black leaders organized aid for people affected by the fire. Throughout the summer, people drew up plans for rebuilding the city. Single-family homes were replaced with apartment buildings and commercial sites. The Atlanta City Council announced that it would enforce an ordinance it had postponed enforcing that mandated fire-resistant roofing. The Great Atlanta Fire of 1917 upended the lives of many of the Fourth Ward's residents and completely transformed the neighborhood. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any comments or suggestions that you'd like to send us, you can send those to thisday at iheartmedia.com. You can also hit us up on social media. We're at TDIHC Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.